My name is Happy Mon Jacob. I teach at the Jawaharlal Nehru University and I am the founder of the Council for Strategic and Defense Research based out of New Delhi. Okay, my name is uh, Raja Mohan, uh, C Raja Mohan. Uh, I am uh, a visiting research professor at the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. I'm also a uh, columnist for the Indian Express. I write on uh, international affairs. You're listening to Indo-Pacific Voices. a podcast for regional perspectives on a wide range of topics with one mission to explore the emergent issues facing the Indo-Pacific so professor rajamohan let me uh, begin by asking a rather big question i mean you know how, how do you understand and unpack the geopolitics of the region is it is it a question of balance of power or clash of civilizations are we looking at a chinese quest for regional hegemony or an american endeavor to maintain its its primacy are we looking at a at a, at a coming bipolarity or the emergence of a multipolar world look i believe uh, and i could be wrong but uh, the essential framework of international relations uh, is power uh, and uh, its uh, uneven distribution among communities or nation states is what is the major driver of the way the politics evolves and the power here is not just military power but of economic power uh you know the uh, military power and a whole range of other capabilities that constitute comprehensive national power and this power is never evenly distributed among states notwithstanding the claims of uh, equality i mean that's fine in theory so i think it is the uneven the nature of the power distribution that drives international politics so it's whatever you do the base is this within that do civilizational influences cultural influences all of them have a role but they're not the determining factors they have, they might add a color they might add a a footnote they might add a twist but but the uh, i believe well runs on uh, distribution of power on the question of uh, Uh, you asked about is it a multipolar or a unipolar right i mean or you talk about the american hegemony bipolarity or multipolarity as it were yeah yeah I, i think look the region never accepted hegemony i think if we go back to the cold war when we talk about cold war the bipolarity was in europe asia there was no bipolarity china which was a communist country a treaty ally which mao zedong signed with uh, joseph stalin broke away from russia at the turn of the 1960s when I mean, you are talking about ideological soulmates breaking up so china refused to accept the discipline that there is something cold war equal you know bipolarity india said we don't we not aligned with either side uh, and that we moved of course later to one side we went closer to the americans when the chinese attack then we moved closer to the russians so this idea india never accepted a bipolar frame many other countries indonesia a whole lot of countries here Uh, so this notion that uh, there is bipolarity uh, that's a theoretical because our problem has been too much generalizations on the basis of european experience while the asian experience mm-hmm. has been uh, that it is never uh, fitted in a bipolar frame does that mean it is multipolar no here again the power is distributed in an uneven manner uh, but what is important is whether it is the uh, the dominance of china or the us I, i think there is resistance to dominance because look i think we got to understand asia liberated itself mm-hmm. at the middle of the 20th century unlike europe which was a defeated continent which needed external power american power 
and the Soviet power to produce a peace settlement within Europe. Asia was not defeated, it just found itself in the middle of the 20th century. So I don't think Asia is simply going to accept the dominance either of the United States or of China. Uh, so there is, I mean, today China is far more powerful. Uh, and just as China is nationalist, so is India is nationalist, Vietnam is nationalist. They are going to resist any attempt at China to impose a unipolar framework in Asia. So if it is, uh, we saw that in the case of Japan, when Japan sought to be a dominant power in Asia, uh, China took the help of the West. Uh, the Indonesians took the help of Japan to fight Dutch. Uh, the Burmese looked to Japan to fight the English uh, imperialism. So, so I think, you know, I think there is enough uh, looseness and diversity in this continent, uh, which doesn't fit in this very macro, you know, you know, frameworks that as, as uh, those of us who do international relations would prefer to see. The I would say focus on the complexity rather than the simplicity of uh, these bipolar uh, presumptions that, that often uh, characterize the region. I completely see the merit in that argument that, uh, that is probably going to be more complex. But would that complexity also then mean more chaos? Um, uh, would that mean more contestations? Um, and, 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 you know, if it is going to be simple, it's going to be, you know, we know who is the, who is the big dog in the fray and therefore the others, are going, others are going to keep quiet. So in this case, are we going to see more chaos and contestations? No, but as I said, look, uh, China breaking from uh, the Soviet Union, it did produce chaos. Actually, it brought them closer to the Americans. Hmm. So there are shifting alignments and I don't see chaos here. Uh, just as, uh, for example, in the middle of the Cold War, the, you know, Indonesia put together the uh, Southeast Asian countries, which are all threatened by communist insurgencies internally. So they became a group. Uh, it is not that the Americans sponsored them, but they came up as a group to fight their internal insurgencies, which are backed by China. So I think, look, I think this is what I think in Asia, there is agency. These are newly independent countries. They're not going to simply cede their sovereignty just because China wants it or Americans want it. And the experience of the last, uh, you know, since the end of the Second World War has been these countries have agency. They know how to play one against the other. Uh, for example, Vietnam, I mean, today is willing to go back to its former colonial ruler, Japan, uh, to deal with the Chinese. Right? I mean, Philippines, which was occupied by Japan, today is willing to take Japanese support to deal with the Chinese power. So, so I think... We must give credit to the leaders. There is nationalism. There is a sense of agency. There's a sense of sovereignty. That will continue to operate. Right. Let's, let's come to the India question in the Indo-Pacific. How do you sort of characterize India's approach to the Indo-Pacific? How is it, say, for example, different from uh, that of the great powers like the US and China on the one hand and the middle powers like Japan and Australia on the other hand? Look, I don't believe this, this stuff about, you know, we say inclusive, the Americans don't say inclusive. This, this is really, this is for dipl diplomatic gibberish. I mean, uh, look, India has, a, India has a simple problem. It is the problem of Chinese power. Right. How do you deal with that is the principal question. But if when you go to ASEAN, sit in Shangri-La dialogue and say, look, uh, because if ASEAN might be too scared, if you say we, are, we have a problem in China, he wants to know, no, this is inclusive. We want everyone in it. That's not going to solve your problem, right? China is sitting on your territory. So it's, your problem is Chinese power. So whatever we might frame it as inclusive, or we want everybody in the room, what is everybody in the room going to do? Which is what non-aligned movement tried, which is what we tried in Bandung. That doesn't solve any problems. So for India, 
One is the question of Chinese power. How do you balance it? Second is, look, the conception of the Indo-Pacific is not very different from uh, the conception of the Indian Ocean and more broadly the, uh, the framework under which uh, British India operated, right? You can say from Aden to Shanghai, you can say uh, that uh, from African coast to the you know, South, you know, Southeast Asian coast. It's a historically, that was also the arena of India's civilizational influence. If you go right up to central Vietnam, you see Indian temples in Southeast Asia. You see in Africa, of course, historically always connected. So I think this large sphere, I mean, is where India's traditional international relations have been. So this is a region, it's a natural region for India, whatever name you give it. The question is, does India increase its influence in this part of the world? Because what we saw happen after independence was India pulled out from a historic security role, which under the colonial rulers that it played. It moved from the center of a region's economic integration to an inward-oriented economy. So that relatively weakened India's position in the regional system. I mean, you can pretend otherwise. We had a great non-aligned movement. We had Bandung. But the fact was, India cut off its trade links with Africa. We were meeting the Africans in New York <laughs> rather than here. Our trade declined. Our connectivity dissipated. Right. So I think as India came back with you know faster economic growth rate, looking at connectivity markets, so there is much we can do. This is not just about US and China. It's also about India reconnecting to this historic civilizational area uh, and, and to raise its profile and its weight in shaping this region's future. You know, Professor Rajamohan, you mentioned uh, non-alignment. You know, in a, in a recent book chapter that you wrote, The Indian Rediscovery of Geopolitics, you write, and I quote, as a large entity located at the crossroads of Asia and the heart of the Indian Ocean, geopolitics should have come naturally to it. Yet, Framed in terms of non-alignment and strategic autonomy, India's foreign policy doctrines seem to dismiss the relevance of geopolitics. Uh, don't you think that concerns about strategic autonomy still influence India's approach to the Indo-Pacific? What are the advantages and risks of such a such an approach moving forward? Look, I think you know the Indians. I think you know construct mystified the notion of strategic autonomy. Look, tell me which country is not strategically autonomous? Do you know any country that doesn't value strategic autonomy? Is it something uniquely Indian? Look, you are a professor of international relations. The first principle we start on is every country tries to maximize its autonomy in a given circumstance, right? Right. Nobody is fully sovereign. And within a constraining international system of multiple sovereigns, you seek to expand your influence or your freedom of action. But we constructed somehow this first principle of international relations a somehow uniquely Indian concept, we should puff our chest, stand up and breathe deeply whenever we think of strategic autonomy. Has in Nepal showed you strategic autonomy? It plays India and China. Hmm. Sri Lanka does the same. Maldives has done it. So what is the special thing about strategic autonomy? I would say strategic autonomy is like saying birds fly, fish swim. <laughs> so this is a natural uh, function of states to seek maximum room for maneuver. So in the context of the Cold War, where two powers, newly independent countries, we said, look, we don't want to just side with each other, anybody. We want to leave our room for action. But in the end, when Chinese attacked, Nehru went to the Americans. So that's alliances, as you know, again, is a natural aspect of international relations. 
whether you read panchatantra whether you read kautilya what are they saying look states seek to increase their power in partnership with others and you know and panchatantra goes into great detail of what type of alliances sometimes you have to do it with the bigger guy but make sure the bigger guy doesn't set the terms sometimes you have to protect the weaker guy but you don't let the weaker guy take you for a ride against a bigger another bigger guy so i think these are natural aspects in that we've somehow treated them as uh as an un- unnatural and that india's liberal internationalist view uh, all countries are going to live happily ever after if you have a multilateral solution i think but the lessons were learned pretty quickly chinese gave us some lessons in real politics in 62 uh, and we constantly faced problems and i think india began to adapt but i think but the discourse remained one of this we are pure we do thinking i mean as if geopolitics doesn't matter to us but now uh, it is changing but the fact is look partition created a set of geographic problems for us today when you say you don't have access to afghanistan what partition did to india on subcontinent as a whole the way it broke up the region created a deep geographic fractures uh, which is still struggling to work china's entering to tibet that was a you know a geopolitical question that you struggled to cope with chinese power in tibet uh, so these were always their problems but we pretended what mattered was asian solidarity so uh, we non aligned will get together and solve problems we stand up in un and you know shout create a trade union against the dominant powers so i think it was a it was uh, it was a, uh, a failed experiment but i think it didn't take long to to see the importance but today the discourse has become more honest that so are you saying that for for a long time india mouthed slogans like uh, non alignment and strategic autonomy and this was more more of a rhetoric and we started believing in our own rhetoric is that is that what you're saying yeah more people i'll blame people like us the academics who gave this mantras meaning Look, Indira Gandhi went. Nehru went to US, right? Indira Gandhi signed the 1971 treaty with the Russians. But at the time, I remember in the School of International Studies, where both of us have studied and uh, you teach now, uh, that if you go back to the International Studies Journal in 1971-72, big big debate <laughs> in the part of right. non-alignment. How can non-aligned India sign a security treaty? So I think, look, but it was a, you needed to balance a China-US rapprochement. in support of pakistan period but nobody wanted to say this is power politics this is actually balance of power game so no no this is really not a departure from non aligned this actually non aligned so we were kind of uh, kind of you know deluding ourselves with rhetoric and all of us i think drum beating this uh, and then if you remember the election of 1977 you're too young perhaps uh, when the janata party was campaigning against indira gandhi's emergency they said we will do genuine non aligned as opposed to indira gandhi which had become pro soviet that the 1971 treaty had secret clauses and we going to do be genuine non aligned so these debates were there but i think the academic discourse lagged mm-hmm. in analyzing the consequence of partition the shifts in the great power politics instead of that we so focused on non alignment non alignment and strategic autonomy not reading how is the power shift taking place what does it mean for india how do we deal mm-hmm. with the consequences of the shifts and i think this way i think we have failed as academic scholars focused on international relations we can't blame the politicians but i think we should have, we could have done a lot better you know you mentioned uh, uh, the the larger balance of power considerations in the region so to what extent do you think uh, india's 
Indo-Pacific pivot is a consequence of the larger balance of power concentrations? Or is it merely a reaction to the deteriorating relations along the LAC with China? Say, for example, if hypothetically speaking, the boundary question with China was to be revolved, was to be resolved to India's satisfaction. Will India's balancing efforts in the Indo-Pacific lose steam, or has it now acquired an independent momentum of its own? What's your take on that? Look, the two parts to it. I think one, our relationship with China. Border dispute is is the main dispute. It's become worse. We tried to stabilize it, build a normal relationship. But Chinese are now saying, look, look, my friend, this is my territory. I'm just taking it. I mean, why are you getting so upset? So now the point is, now you have to deal with that situation. 30 years of agreements have been trashed. So now tomorrow, the Chinese give us a deal, assuming the status quo and say, look, right. okay, right. surely that will create a much better conditions for India-China relationship. But that doesn't, are the Chinese also promising you they'll stop supporting Pakistan? Are the Chinese are going to tell you they're not going to come into Sri Lanka and say, you know, sell them arms mm. that might cause problems mm. for you? Look, mm. I think there is a friction is structural. If you remove the border dispute, set that aside. A rising China and a growing India, the friction between the competing influence, you know, spheres of uh, footprints, I mean, if you will, there is a friction. When China wants to come into South Asia. You said, this is my area, why are you coming and mucking it on? China said, no, this is everybody's free to come. So at this point, Chinese capacity to shape your neighbors has increased. That's not going to disappear with the border dispute. Chinese are blocking you in the UN Security Council. That's not because of the border dispute. They say, look, there are too many guys here. We don't need another idiot from Asia. They're saying, we are representing Asia. Why do you want to come in? We'll take care of your interests. So I, there is a power question here. So look, Chinese think today the power gap between us is so high that they can dictate terms to this relationship. Till that changes, uh, this is not going to end. India-China structural conflict is not going to end. The second thing in terms of what the second part of the question, look, even before you called it Indo-Pacific, if you go back to the last 20 years, it was Mr. Gujarat who talked about the extended neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. And he talks about this whole of Indian Ocean, we've forgotten about it, we got to come back. But who said it first? I mean, it was said by Lord Curzon. If you read Curzon's uh, imagination of India's geography, he's saying, look, this whole Indian Ocean is India's sphere of influence. India is a dominant power. Now, you, those ideas got revived in the post-91 period as your economic strength re-emerged. We started saying, look east. That started, let's say, 92, even before that in Rajiv Gandhi's years. Uh, you started reconnecting to the Gulf, where your diasporas had increased, your oil supplies, oil imports have increased. You went into Central Asia, you returned to Africa. So I think the rise of India naturally produced this fear. And uh, by calling it today Indo-Pacific, you don't remove the previous history. Right? What is the, when the current framing, what has changed is today we are working together with the Americans, which you are not before. We thought we could work with the Chinese. That's not worked. Mm-hmm. Today there's a much greater partnership with the US, with the West, with Britain, with France. That's what has changed. But in the end, this is about expanding India's influence in its own neighborhood or extended neighborhood, if you will. You know, um, I mean, let's, let's very quickly talk about um, um, uh, Quad. How do you sort of understand the evolution of Quad, given the fact that it has taken on a series of non-security issues under its ambit? Um, does it sort of, uh, um, you know, distract us from the primary purpose, which is to sort of counter China, as it were? Well, again, two parts. I think, look, the Quad is a very significant part of India's evolution. 
uh, barring you know that India uh, did not want to get into any uh, plurilateral coalitions uh, before. We had a bilateral treaty with the Russians, uh, but other than that, uh, we didn't want to get into any security kind of any kind of coalitions within the region. We're on our own. We do things. We are either multi, very multilateral or we are unilateral. We don't do in between stuff. But today, I think it, because of the scale of the Chinese challenges so much, today you're willing to join groups of a four, say the Quad, the US, Japan, and Australia, that you needed a broader coalition to, to, to preserve your interests in this part of the world. Now, I think this is an evolution in India's turn, and it is, that evolution is dependent on the, on the circumstances that, that we have. But then the debate on is it military or non-military, it's again that look. It's not that Quad has to do everything. Right? That what is India doing with the U.S.? Is it doing more defense now than before? Of course. Is India buying more, more defense equipment from the Americans? Yes. Is India sharing more intelligence with the Americans? Yes. Is there greater interoperability between India, Japan, and Australia? Yes. So I think don't go by what is it called. <coughs> the fact is, India does not want <coughs> the Quad to be framed as a purely security alliance. That doesn't stop India from doing security cooperation with the US, Japan, or Australia. And, and for India, it's a good, good situation because we said, look, we don't want to do security. Americans said, fine, we don't want to make it a security with other stuff to do, from vaccines to climate change, any number of things to do. So let's do those while we continue security cooperation in a bilateral format, uh, which, which continues. So I think it's actually for India, it's a success. We told the Americans, look, don't make it a a security related thing, but we can do security in some other some other place. What is the net result? There's more security cooperation between India and the US, between India and Australia. But the Quad as a as a coalition is going to focus on strategic issues. They're not, you know, trivial issues. So vaccine competition, critical supply chains, new technologies. These are not uh, you know trivial issues. These are serious issues which actually accrue to India's strength. Over a period of time. Uh, you know, let me ask one final question. We don't have too much time left. You know, you recently written that uh, there is a growing concern in Delhi about the sustainability of U.S. alliances in Eurasia and Indo-Pacific. Uh, what does it mean for India's larger geopolitical approach and orientation? This concern about the, the sustainability of the U.S. Uh, alliances. I think the alliances need to be reformed. I mean, I think, uh, or the whole framework of the post-war period, where the U.S. had so much power, Europe was down, uh, and it came in to create a framework of alliances, both in uh, Central Europe and Northeast Asia, right? Basically, two areas, and the rest of the region they formed various ad hoc means to fight communism, uh, and its and its spread. But today, within the U.S., they're saying that look, we can't be everywhere and try to do everything. We need to limit the amount of things we need to do. So, so they need to find new partners who are willing to work with them. Mm. Right? The US can't do everything. It would either right. you would redistribute the workload of an alliance, what you call burden sharing. But then today, Europe doesn't want to do the kind of things where today India is open to a larger role for itself. So India and US can look at sharing the burden in a better way. India wants to be a bigger power. Americans are saying, look, we want to get rid of some of our burdens. So I think there is a perfect fit here between an America that's reshaping its alliances and its burdens, and India that is a rising India that needs to 
expand its profile. So US that supports India to play a bigger role. For example, you can think of a proposition. It's often said, US says, look, India, you take care of South Asia. I got bigger challenge to bigger fish to fry in the Pacific. So let's you take the lead in Indian Ocean and I'll back you, which, which serves us very well, right? Mm -hmm. So I think this is still to be negotiated in terms of how this plays out. Uh, but within the US, uh, whether it is Trump or on the Democratic Party, they're saying, look, why are we spending so much on NATO, for example? Uh, Germany should be doing more for its own defense. Japan should be doing more for its own defense. The US, Uncle Sam can't be forever be mm -hmm. the, you know, the treasury for your security problems. <laughs> the countries like you know Japan and Germany, you know, free riders in a sense. But India is not a free rider. India is not saying, give me security from China. You come and defend me against Chinese. No, we're not saying that. We're saying, look, you help me deal with my security problems. You give me technology, give me weapons. I can do this myself. So I think that's where America is not looking for more passengers on its train. Right. It's looking right. for partners who can contribute, who can take leadership, who have the political will to do things. So I think in this new framework, I think we have a natural fit with the Americans. And, uh, but the problem is we still see the world in 1945 terms. Uh, but as US redefines its role and the China challenge grows, uh, I think uh, for India, the opportunities to work with other countries uh, in the West would, would definitely grow. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Raja Mohan. As always, fantastic insights. Thank you for joining me on this podcast. Great to be with you, Happy. Thank you for tuning in. Rate this conversation on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. To stay updated, visit our website, ipcircle.org, and follow us on Twitter at ip underscore circle. The opinions expressed in this podcast belong to the speakers and do not represent the organizational views held by either the Council for Strategic and Defense Research or the Center for Policy Research.